Oh, I get the cranks out of those neck muscles. Oh, there we go. Right, okay, that's enough. Sit down. <laughs> Hands up if you're a Narnia fan, as in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. Yeah, okay, a few of you. Um, even if you haven't read the books, uh, you may be familiar with the storyline. It's an allegory of the Christian life that revolves around three children, Susan, Peter and Lucy. They meet Aslan, the lion, the king of Narnia, um, who of course represents Jesus. And as the story unfolds, they become Aslan's most loyal followers. Peter and Susan become king and queen of Narnia. But then, the climax of the Narnia series is in the last book called The Last Battle. It's pretty much an allegory of the book of Revelation. Uh, it's the final battle between good and evil. As the story draws to a close, we're in a scene which is, um, represents the new creation. Uh, Aslan's people are with him in a restored world. Things are made right once again. But then if you notice carefully, there's one jarring omission to the story. Peter and Lucy are there, but there's no Susan. Some of the other characters ask where Susan is. Peter tells them, my sister Susan is no longer a friend of Narnia. Eustace, their cousin, adds, yes, and whenever you try to get her to come and talk about Narnia or do anything about Narnia, she says, what wonderful memories you have. Fancy you still thinking about all those funny games we used to play when we were children. You see, Susan had moved on. Following Aslan was a thing of the past. In her mind, she'd grown up and left that behind. Today's passage is a warning about not leaving Jesus behind, not to move on from him. And this isn't just a hypothetical thing. Because I reckon each one of us could name at least one friend or family member or someone from youth group or school or whatever who used to go to church, who used to say they were a Christian, who's now left Jesus behind and he has now no part of their life. And the warning isn't just for those who are very obviously given God the flick. It's a warning to every one of us who's sitting here today in church. Those of us who say the right things, say that we trust in Jesus, we believe the right things. This is a warning for us not to be complacent, not to take God for granted, not to think that I don't have to keep growing as a Christian. This is a word that we need to hear today. We've got four points as we move through the passage and they represent the four sections of our passage. One, the writer rebukes his readers that they're becoming lazy in their faith. They should be teachers, but they still need spiritual milk. Two, he urges them to keep growing, produce fruit, because if you fall away, there's no coming back. And the way to produce fruit is point three, Put your hope in God's promises and imitate those who walk in faith. 
And then point four, he puts on flesh on what those promises are. They are heirs to the, that we are heirs to the promises given to Abraham. And they are fulfilled in Jesus. Let's pray, friends, as we come to our passage. Father, today's word is quite a difficult word to hear. Uh, it involves some harsh words, uh, some, some rebuke. Lord, we pray that you would give us ears to hear what you say to us today. We pray that we, it wouldn't just go in one ear and out the other, but that your word would be as a double-edged sword to us, that we would hear it, that we would respond to it, uh, that we would be changed as a result of it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week you may remember that we looked at how Jesus is our great high priest, how he is better than the human high priests who went before him because Jesus is both God and human at the same time, unlike the old high priests. And because of that, Jesus is able to save us completely by dying on the cross. But now in today's passage, the author changes tone quite suddenly and so verse 11 of chapter 5 about this we have much to say that is Jesus being the high priest and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing he wants to keep explaining about this pretty meaty topic but feels his listeners aren't ready for it the word dull here can be translated lazy um, or as the NIV uh, puts it up from our reading, puts it well, you no longer try to understand. You no longer try to understand. The problem isn't that they're not smart enough or that they're not educated enough. No, they've given up making an effort to think deeply about God's word. And so that's why the author has a pretty harsh rebuke for the church. So our first point, you're becoming lazy, 5.11 to 14. Have a look at verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. Friends, we need to hear this word. Because we are immersed in a culture that encourages being shallow, overthinking deeply. And, you know, we all know the cliche that social media feeds that kind of shallow thinking. But it's true, isn't it? And it's not just social media, but it's a symptom of a much bigger cultural tide that values the 30-second grab bite over sustained thinking about Jesus or about any issue at all. At the risk of sounding like a grumpy old man here, one of our losses is that many of us no longer read much. My boys are constantly telling me I'm a boomer, uh, even though, Bill, I'm a Gen Xer, not a, not a boomer. I'm definitely not a boomer. But I believe there's a real cost to this uh, of not reading. One of the costs is that we don't read the Bible. 
We don't read it in a disciplined, consistent way like previous generations used to. And what this has led to is a loss of a solid foundation. It makes us hard to think deeply about how the Bible applies to our life. Now, I don't want this to sound too harsh, but many of us have become at least a bit lazy when it comes to a commitment to knowing and living God's word. And I want to suggest that one very obvious litmus test that shows that this is a problem for us is the attendance rate at community groups. Many of us, too many of us, just have not made CGs a priority. I, can, I get it that it can be hard. Midweek, you're tired, um, you've got to rush after, after work, uh, shove dinner down and then get to CG. I know it's not easy. But it's something that we make a commitment to. We're committing not just to come for ourselves, for our benefit, but we make a commitment for each other as well. When you come to CG, it's for your brothers and sisters. It's not just for yourself. And really, why should it be different to your commitment to going to work? I'm sure there are plenty of days for you who are workers when you don't feel like getting up and going to work, right? But you don't just turn up when you don't feel like it, do you? You still get out of bed and you still go to work. If you only get to CGs, say, 50% of the time or even less, then that may be a reflection that you're in danger of spiritual laziness, that you're in danger of drifting, even falling away. And this passage is a warning. The author goes on to urge his church to repent of that laziness. Instead of staying as spiritual babies, he tells them to grow up. That's our second point. Verses one, chapter 6, 1 to 8. Have a look at verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instructions about washing, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. So this isn't saying that we're to forget those things, the foundational stuff, and move on to something else. We often talk about the idea that we never leave the gospel behind, don't we? And rightly so. We always need to keep coming back to what Jesus has done for us. It's not talking about that. It's not contradicting that. But the idea here is that the gospel, the basic doctrine about Jesus, repentance, the resurrection, those things are the absolute foundation. And growing to maturity is about building on that foundation, going deeper from that foundation and applying it more and more, growing in how that applies to our life. Let me use a modern day example. Um, you may have heard the gospel perhaps through a gospel track, say, Two Ways to Live. Um, the truths outlined in Two Ways to Live are a wonderful and necessary truths 
to becoming a Christian. But if you never move beyond that, if you never learn to go deeper on the message of Scripture, things like how Jesus fulfills the story of the Old Testament, if you never think about things like what it means to live as a Christian in the world without being part of the world. In other words, if you never keep learning about who Jesus is and what God is like and how to be a disciple, then you're going to stay like a spiritual baby and you won't grow up. And friends, this isn't just a nice add-on for the really keen beans. There's a real danger in being lazy and standing still as a Christian. Um, the author spells it out in verse 4. Uh, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Hard words. Notice that there's a sudden shift from talking about standing still and not growing up as a Christian to falling away. That's because the danger is very real. There's a very real logical progression from the person who comes to church, maybe even comes to CG as well, but isn't growing. They're going nowhere in their walk with God. There's a very real unbroken line from being there to falling away. Is that you? Because if it is, please listen and take this very seriously. Because the danger is that you are falling and you don't even know it. And here's why. Because when we fall, it's usually in slow motion. And you don't even realise that it's happening. It happens bit by bit by bit. It's not like one day you're active in ministry, diligent in serving, connected in Christian community, and then you wake up the next day and think, I don't want to be a Christian anymore. No, it doesn't work like that. Instead, it's a death by a thousand little decisions. I don't think I'll go to church today. I'm really tired and worn out. So then next Sunday, it's just that bit easier to skip church again. Or, I won't read my Bible today. I'll skip it because I'm really busy. But then after a week of being busy, it becomes that much easier to chat with my friends or check what's happening in the world than to pick up the Bible. Then before you know it, God's word just seems irrelevant to my everyday life or boring and I lose any desire to study it. It's like the frog in the kettle. Uh, you may have heard this illustration. I've never tested it, but I'm told that if you put a frog in a kettle of cold water and then bring it to the boil, uh, they don't notice that they're being boiled and they don't try to escape until it's too late and they're cooked. The passage goes on to use a farming picture 
to illustrate what it looks like for someone who's fallen away. Verse 7. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be cursed, to be burned. Friends, it's an ugly thing to see someone who calls themselves a Christian taking in all those blessings and the good things that God pours out only for them to give nothing back in return. Just like thorns and thistles in a paddock are useless and ugly. But on the other hand, it's so attractive to see God's people give themselves in service to others. Verse 7, producing a crop that's useful to our brothers and sisters. It's beautiful to see God produce fruit in our lives as we respond in gratitude to God's love and goodness to us. Now, just um, changing tack slightly, just a quick note on a burning question that this passage raises that you may well have uh, thought about. Is it possible for a Christian to lose their salvation? Well, on the face of it, it looks like it might be from this passage. Unfortunately, I haven't got time to do justice to the question, but my short answer is no, I don't think it's possible. And here's why. Because other parts of the Bible make it crystal clear that those chosen by God can be assured that God will never let them go. And if you're worried about that, if you're troubled by the idea that perhaps you may fall away, let me say, friends, that that's actually a good sign. It's actually a good sign that you are genuinely saved and that God will not let you go. Because it's showing that your relationship with God is something that's genuinely important to you. And that is a good sign. But this passage isn't talking to those people. Rather, it's talking to the lazy person. The person who isn't worried about where they're at with God. It's warning the complacent person who thinks that they're okay and that they can just sit back in the pews and take it easy. It's a word to those who can say the right things about God, but really their heart is far from him. Well, then the writer changes tone to a more to a happier note, a more optimistic note. He says in verse 9 that he's confident of better things for his readers. Have a look with me at verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. He urges them to keep going by serving the saints, verse 10. And to keep being confident in their hope. That's our third point. To be confident in their hope. And it's there in verse 11. We desire each of you to show the same earnestness 
to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Now this hope that he's talking about, we bandied the idea of hope around um, uh, today, um, but we use it in a different sense, don't we? we? We say things like, I hope it won't rain tomorrow, or I hope I don't get sick before my wedding. Trevor and Ali are thinking, thinking that. Um, but it's not expressing any kind of assurance, is it? It's based on a wish. Uh, I, really, I really want it uh, to, be, to not rain tomorrow. But when the Bible uses hope, it uses it in a completely different way. It's an assurance based on reality. And that reality is what we looked at last week. Remember Jesus being our high priest who sacrificed his life so that we could be saved. This is the antidote to being spiritually lazy. The antidote isn't to get the whip out and to say, try harder. It's not to introduce some kind of performance review that we've got to live up to. Uh, it's not to, uh, yeah, to, to, to have a role that we keep at CGs and if you, if you, if you don't come, then you're not allowed. To. No, it's a, it, we're not talking about that. The way we, get comp- way we get passion and conviction in our walk with God is to fix our eyes on Jesus. To understand that he chose us to be his from before the creation of the world. To know that he loves us so much that he let himself be humiliated and killed as a criminal for us. And that we can have full assurance that he will not let us go. And then the author adds a really practical step for helping us in that process. He desires that they have assurance of their hope, verse 12, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Be imitators of others. Friends, that's why we need each other. That's why Christian community is non-negotiable. That's why you need to come to church and to CG. Because I am encouraged and spurred on as I see you live out your faith. God uses you to provide what's lacking in me. That's how the body of Christ works. We support each other. We need each other. Well, then in our last section, the author shows us someone from the Old Testament, Abraham, who did have faith in the promises that God gave him. And he is someone that we should imitate. But then at the same time, the promises given to Abraham are also God's promises to us. We are to put our hope in that promise. So our fourth point, the hope of the promise from verses 13 to 20 of chapter 6. The promise that God gave Abraham is in verse 14. Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And then we are told that Abraham waited patiently for that promise, verse 15. And he's an example to us to do the same. But the main point of this passage about Abraham isn't just the example that he gives us, 
But the, the, the promise given to Abraham is also the same promise that's given to us. We don't get the full picture just from this passage, but the author actually assumes that his audience will know the full story uh, of Abraham um, that is in Genesis chapter 12. Uh, we won't look at it now, but you may be familiar with the promise. God appeared to Abraham and promised him three things to bless him, well, four things really, bless him, to multiply him into a great nation, to give him land, that is, uh, ancestors, ancestors, um, people who come after him would inherit. And then fourthly, that through him all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. That's the one we want to pick up on. All peoples of the earth all nations of the earth will be blessed. How are they blessed? They're blessed through Jesus being our great high priest. Let me show you how we know that from this passage. Firstly, the promises to Abraham have a very long time stamp on them. They have a long time stamp on them. It's there in verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So the promise wasn't just to Abraham. It wasn't just to his son, but it was to his heirs as well, plural. God made an oath to Abraham for their benefit. That oath was God swearing to himself, verse 13. He gave Abraham a vision of an animal cut in half and a smoking pot in the middle. The meaning of that vision was that God swearing to himself, God swearing to himself that if his promises didn't come true, then may he become like that animal torn in half. In other words, the point is that God is guaranteeing in the strongest way possible, that he will keep his promise. He will keep his promise. And he makes that promise to Abraham's heirs. And then in verse 18, it's clear that we are those heirs. We are the heirs to Abraham's promise. Verse 18. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So that's the hope of Abraham. It's the same hope. And we are the ones who receive encouragement um, from it. The hope of being blessed through Abraham. It's a hope set before us. We are the heirs of that promise. And now we come to the link between this promise to Abraham and Jesus, verses 19 and 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The hope that Abraham had is fulfilled in Jesus going into the inner place behind the curtain. And he does that 
as our high priest. So linking back to last week's passage. What the writer is talking about here is the temple. In the middle of the temple was a place, a little room called the inner place or the holy of holies as it's sometimes called. And that was where God dwelt symbolically. It was where his presence was. And there was this big, huge curtain that separated the inner place, the Holy of Holies, from the rest of the temple. People could go into the rest of the temple, the outside of it, but they could not ever go into the Holy of Holies except the high priest once a year. And that was because God was holy and the people were not. The people were sinful. It showed very graphically that God was too holy for his sinful people. And so there was this great separation between God and his people. This curtain which they could never go behind. But Jesus went into the inner place, we're told, before us as our representative. That means that because he went in there, he opens the way for us to go in there as well. In fact, in the Gospels we read, when Jesus died, you may remember that funny reference to the curtain in the temple being torn in two. That's what that's about. There is no longer a barrier between us and God. God's assurance to Abraham was that he swore by himself. His assurance to us was that Jesus broke his body on the cross. A sure and certain anchor for our faith. And what all this means, friends, is that we don't have to be stuck in the gloomy warnings about falling away. Because if your hope is in Jesus, that is a sure and certain anchor upon which you can build your life. You can be sure that Jesus has you in his grip and he will not let you go. Even if you feel like your grip is feeble and weak, it does not depend on you. Because we have Jesus as our high priest who has guaranteed our future with him. Get the band up now. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this passage. Lord, we, uh, even though there are hard parts in it about falling away and dire warnings about uh, standing still in our walk with you, Father, thank you so much for the end of the passage that tells us that the antidote to that is by fixing our eyes on Jesus and that he is a sure and certain anchor for our faith. Father, we ask that we would take the eyes off ourselves and that we would fix our eyes on Jesus, that we would grow in confidence of him, that we would grow in thankfulness for the fact that he has done everything we need to go into that holy of holies and into God's presence.
Amen.